This week, we're going to be talking about pulse oximetry. We'll go over the basic principles that underlie it, the equipment that we use in practice, and some of the common errors and confounding factors that we encounter whilst using it. As we've heard in the episode on infrared spectroscopy, all molecules made up of dissimilar atoms absorb infrared. If you want to hear about why in more detail, you should go back and have a listen to that episode. The infrared absorption spectra for molecules, so that's the amount of each specific wavelength that a molecule can absorb, is different for each molecule, kind of like its own infrared fingerprint. This is because it's determined by the different molecular bonds that make up a molecule and their arrangement. So, as the structures of oxygenated and deoxygenated hemoglobin are different from each other, their absorption spectra are different. We see this day-to-day as a difference in the colour between arterial and venous blood. We know that arterial blood is a brighter red because it mainly absorbs infrared and reflects red light. Conversely, venous blood is dark as it absorbs more red light than infrared. There is a wavelength where the absorption of light by both oxygenated and deoxygenated hemoglobin are the same. This is called the isobestic point and occurs at around 805 to 810 nanometers. This is not important for pulse oximetry, but can be used to calculate hemoglobin concentration in a blood sample. They also quite like asking about it in exams. So now we know that oxygenated and deoxygenated hemoglobin absorb different amounts of light at different wavelengths. We can use this to estimate their relative concentrations and calculate our saturations, or SpO2. Our pulse oximeters shine light at two different wavelengths. 660 nanometers, which is in the red part of the light spectrum, and 940 nanometers, which is infrared. These wavelengths were picked because they are at areas of biggest difference between the absorption spectra of oxygenated and deoxygenated hemoglobin. They were also the wavelengths of LEDs that were commercially available when pulse oximetry was first invented. The LEDs in a pulse oximeter flash on and off in a specific sequence at a rate of around 30 times a second. Opposite the LEDs is a light sensor that senses how much passes through. The light that does not pass through is assumed to be absorbed. But remember that all other tissues in the finger or earlobe that you have your probe attached to will absorb light at varying wavelengths. To ignore these, the pulse oximeter uses a clever mechanism to only measure the arterial blood component. The assumption is that the arterial component will be the only pulsatile component. With each heartbeat, there will be a transient increase in the volume delivered to the finger. This is felt as a pulse, but it can also be measured as an increase in volume of the finger. The Beer-Lambert law, which we also covered in the infrared spectroscopy episode, states that the absorption is directly proportional to the distance the light has to pass through. As the finger increases in volume, the distance between the LEDs and the sensor gets larger. This cycles with each heartbeat. The result is a light signal that has an alternating component, which accounts for about 1-5% to of the total signal. Only the differences in absorption between 660 and 940 nanometers are measured for this component. The ratio of the difference in absorption can be used to determine the oxygen saturation of the blood. So if more infrared rather than red light is absorbed, there will be more oxygenated hemoglobin, and the saturations will be higher. Now let's talk about some of the sources of error for pulse oximetry. These can be divided into issues with the equipment, 
changes to the patient's blood flow, and different types of hemoglobin. Firstly, the equipment. Older pulse oximeters could give erroneous results when exposed to the lights in theatre. These also flicker and can fool the light sensors into thinking that they are picking up more light than they actually are. So it's good practice to shield these from light. Newer models have light shields built in. Pulse oximeters were also only validated down to 70% saturation, as they are tested on healthy volunteers. So any readings below this are extrapolated and unlikely to be accurate. Secondly, the patient's blood flow. If the patient has poor peripheral blood flow, such as when they are hypothermic, or on lots of vasopressors, or hypotensive, the trace might be too poor to be able to measure a reasonable alternating component. This will result in either no tracing, or a falsely low reading. Also, if there is any abnormality that results in a different alternating component, such as venous congestion, blood pressure cuff inflation, or significant tricuspid regurgitation, then venous blood will be captured in the alternating component, and the saturations will also be falsely low. Finally, let's talk about the hemoglobinopathies. They're a bit of a favourite for the exams. There are three main ones that you'll be asked about. Sickle hemoglobin, carboxyhemoglobin, and methemoglobin. Sickle hemoglobin is easy. It doesn't have a different absorption spectra, and therefore doesn't change the saturation reading for a pulse oximeter. Carboxyhemoglobin is formed when carbon monoxide binds tightly to hemoglobin. It makes our patients look red-faced, but is unable to carry any oxygen. So carboxyhemoglobin has an absorption spectrum that absorbs very little red light. This fools the pulse oximeter into thinking that there is an abundance of oxyhemoglobin, and therefore it falsely gives saturations of 100%. To find a true oxygen saturation, you need to do an arterial blood gas and work it out from the partial pressure of oxygen. This saturation, by the way, is called an SAO2 rather than an SPO2. Methemoglobin is caused by oxidation of the ferrous Fe2 iron to the ferric Fe3 form inside the hemoglobin's porphyrin ring. This causes an increased affinity for oxygen, but does not readily give it up to the tissues. It has a blue colour and makes our patients look very cyanotic. Again, it has a different absorption spectrum that absorbs a lot of 940 nanometer red light. This makes the probe think that the saturations are 85% regardless of the true saturations. Well, that's it for this episode. Today you've learnt about pulse oximetry, how it relies on a difference in absorption characteristics between oxygenated and deoxygenated hemoglobin, and some of the common errors that are encountered when using it in clinical practice. Thanks so much for listening. If you've liked this episode, please feel free to subscribe through your podcast player of choice. You can also find all of these episodes online at planaprimary.co.uk. Remember, this entire series is going to be published absolutely free, so please share this with anyone who you think might find it useful. If you've got any questions, feedback, or just want to request a topic, feel free to email me at questions at planaprimary.co.uk, or you can leave a comment by this episode online.